Hello and welcome to Spice Voice of Assisitude. I'm your hostess Dr. Hena, founding member of the Association of Women Surgeons Pakistan (AWSP). Today marks a very special episode as we'll be joined by one of our very own Dr. Adil Haider from the class of 1998. Dr. Adil is the current dean at the Aha University Hospital, a position he has held since 2018. Moreover, Dr. Haider possesses a considerable amount of leadership experiences, having served as the Kessler Director at Birmingham and Women's Hospital. president of the association of american surgery and the director of the center for surgery trials and outcome research amongst many other today we'll be discussing a variety of topics such as dr heather's life journey his pathway through public health as well as the trauma surgeon and his body of work which has led to him changing the lives of many so without any further ado assalamualaikum sir so we'll start from the very start here tell us about your childhood what kind of a kid were you what were your hobbies how was your childhood like Assalamu alaikum Dr. Hina it is such a pleasure to be on your podcast and I'm thrilled to see the work you're doing for the Pakistan Association of Women Surgeons so to answer your question I grew up in a little town in the United States called Zanesville Ohio and uh, you know from there our, my dad was an engineer so we moved from place to place and eventually I sort of most identify with the small town in Huntington, Indiana, which is best known for a vice president who came from that small town in the United States. His name was Dan Quayle. He was George Bush Sr.'s vice president. And so we had a very idyllic, totally American Midwest upbringing. You can just picture it with like a stream in the backyard with a, like a tire swing hanging from a tree and like, you know, that kind of idyllic, just beautiful backdrop to grow up in. And then at some point, Teenager, my parents uh, decided that they really wanted to uh, serve their uh, country that they're from, and they were from Pakistan, and so we moved to Karachi, uh, which was, to be honest, a culture change, but a very welcome change. It was, you know, in the very early '80s, Pakistan was very different back then, and uh, the thing that struck me the most was the incredible warmth of everybody. in Karachi I also saw that the dichotomy as I was living in you know a rural but upscale rural kind of part of the United States and then I sent them to Karachi and I see this incredible amount of uh, first of all people but more you know people who just been, there was just no provision of basic things that that folks needed and that struck me and I could understand why my uh, dad left his what one would call a comfortable life and my parents and thought that it was important to a raise their children to understand what the world really is like uh, and more importantly give back to uh, the country that they you know uh, were from so mm-hmm. that's kind of how I ended up in Karachi uh, I had the opportunity to go to some good schools here uh, and then I had applied to college back in the United States and uh, one reason for that was that i was uh, in the what they call a level system and uh, back then you couldn't get into a government medical college if you were from the a level system they would actually to make a long story short cut about 20% of your score and uh, what that would amount to is that you couldn't get into a medical college or some medical college and on the one hand i knew that i wanted to come to aga khan and every young student uh, that was like a dream but you also knew that you know the, ch- the chances were not so good like 3500 applicants back then 100 people got in and dow wasn't going to 
wasn't possible. So the third option was to go back to the United States. But then I came across the opportunity to actually appeal to the Karachi University to change the system. You know, that system had come up during the martial law when Zial Haq was the president. And now we had, you know, democracy. And so uh, we went to Karachi University that did the equivalents in the endowed you see part of that back then. And uh, they agreed. And then uh, we went all the way up to the governor. And there was a group of students. And we got the rule changed. So I go there to Dow Medical College to pay the fee, obviously excited. And it turns out that I had promptly been expelled before even being admitted. And I, I'm like, what's this? And they said, no, fees not going to be because principal sahab ne aapko expel kar diya hai. And I had been labeled a miscreant that I had somehow led this group of terrible A-level students who were now going to, uh, you know, dusre bachon ko haq kha jane. Kaise haq kare hai, I mean, how is that possible? Because, yeah, because they're this, I mean, they're students too. And everybody should have an equal chance. But I also in that moment learned the meaning of community. So the other students who got in, they obviously felt really bad about it and they actually banded together and, and paid for a lawyer to then uh, do a petition in the Sin High Court to say that you know this is unfair and you know this person should have the same rights as, as everybody else. And then you know interestingly that course case started. I learned so much about the legal system. I learned how you know you can make a change if you are in the right. And I was formally admitted right around the time I got my acceptance letter from AKU, right? Uh, which was just one of the most, I, I'll never forget that moment that, you know, you, we had heard the admission letters have come out that day and you waited for the TCS guy to come. And if the TCS guy came, you know, you were in. And if you'd get a letter by regular post, you know, it wasn't going to, it's not a good, good letter. So, you know, when the TCS guy showed up at my, at my door, I remember opening him up opening up the door and uh, meeting the guy and I, I immediately like, saw the envelope. The guy also knew what it was, the guy bringing the envelope. And, uh, and then I immediately went into Sajda and uh, I can remember my mom was on the phone and then she like was, I think she's like, I think Adil got to take you. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's how it, how it all kind of started. So while you were in school, when did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor or medicine was it for you? Okay, so that's back to Indiana. I was, you know, a little kid, five years old or six years old back then, and uh, there was a TV show called Trapper John MD. Mm -hmm. This was a spin-off of the very famous show called MASH. And on that show, this Trapper John MD show, there was a guy called Gonzo who was a, who he could fix anything. And I was like, I want to be that kind of surgeon. And that's why, you know, no offense to my cardiac surgery friend here, uh, that's why I became a trauma surgeon because I thought I could fix everything. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a moment's notice. And I even have a picture uh, of me, a six-year-old, like, you know, how they have those, like, career days when you want to be. And I had, like, made this patient and had put the whole intestines in there. I even had the pancreas. And I was six years old. Yeah, yeah. And I have a picture. I still have that picture. My mom preserved it, yeah. Okay, so now that you're in AQ, you're a student here. How was MBBS for you? What kind of a student were you? Any exciting moments? Yeah, it was tough. So, I mean, I get to AKU, and I wasn't a bad student. And even on the test, apparently, I did well. I mean, Salim Varani was one ahead of me. He was also in the class. And, you know, I got, I, I got my first anatomy cat. We used to have continuous assessment tests every two weeks. So for today's students who are always worried about exams, we literally did them every two weeks. And, you know, the first one wasn't too bad. The second one, I bombed. And I'm like, oh, this is more difficult than I, than I thought it was. 
Uh, I was fine at physiology because that was like more understanding stuff. And then I figured out over time with friends. And this is where I strongly recommend today's medical students that, you, you know, it's very important to make that group of friends, especially a diverse group of friends, uh, because I learned how to study from people, in, in fact, from people who weren't even from Karachi. And I made friends with them and they were in the hostel. I would stay up all night with them. I learned to study with them. And then the other thing that I realized about myself is that I needed to be sort of out of my comfort zone. I needed to meet more people. I needed to uh, some sort of other external stimuli along with studying because I just I just wasn't built to do four hours in a stretch. But I did do it. You know, when exam time came, did it. Uh, I, there was this one student who would like go around explaining things to people. And, and I realized that really worked. So a lot of times when I became older, you know, I would probably be found in the, back then we used to all sit in the cafeteria, I would be found in the cafeteria basically moving from table to table, sort of sponging knowledge off everybody else instead of studying myself. The other thing that happened a lot was, um, uh, I, I, luckily I was friendly with many of my female colleagues who did a much better job taking notes. It's just one of those things. I mean, you know, and, 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 and they were so kind to me. I think we sort of had a barter system, especially with the, uh, with the young woman in the hostel where I would drive them around to Time Medico and stuff because I had a car. And we would, like, if they want to buy, like, bread or something, I would drive them there, but I would always get the notes. We would drive over there. I would photocopy the notes. They would do grocery. Nice. <laughs> uh, and so we had a great system. And, it wasn't, and just to be clear, it wasn't only for the girls. I would do that for the guys as well. So, uh, but, but lots of just fantastic memories. I was not the number one student, nowhere near that. But I was very socially active, and I was the first person to be the ACC, our Arts and Culture Convener, in their third year. And then I also was the Curriculum and Promotion Committee, used to be the joint rep in the fourth year. So it's, it's not too common for somebody to have both of those roles, because the party person is usually not the curriculum rep person, but somehow I was both. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that defines my career till now, about uh, doing, or maybe I just grew up by the end of it. And at that, by the end of it, I did realize that this is serious business. I got really involved in research. Uh, I was on my OB rotation, and uh, partly because of the team member who I would get to work with, who remains a very good friend of mine. So she and I did a great project together, and uh, that's where I really got into research. And I think that really changed my whole trajectory. The love of research, understanding, it wasn't actually OB, it was on postpartum depression. And uh, that's where I first sort of cut my teeth on doing a survey myself, you know, with a lot of supervision by Dr. Rahat Quraishi and other great AKU uh, professors and mentors. I also got to go present at a conference for the first time. So this whole excitement that you get by going and sharing your scientific work and seeing what other people around the world are doing. I got to go present in Turkey and then I presented in Berlin while a medical student. And it was just so fantastic. Okay. And so... What made you pursue your public health master's degree? Was it this research that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. So, I, I knew I was going to be a trauma surgeon. Uh, that was the, was the basic thing. I always wanted to be a trauma surgeon. But I realized that just by doing surgery, I may not be able to have that much impact on society. And, of course, at Aga Khan, we had 20% of our curriculum is focused on community health. And then I learned all about this research stuff. And so the same friend I mentioned, we both decided that it was, if it was her idea, uh, that we should do public health. And I was on electives uh, actually at the Mayo Clinic on the emergency room surgical service. And I was like, you know, if I could merge this with public health and trauma, I could really have a bigger impact. 
And the coolest thing was is that when I came back to Aachen, I was just graduating, I met a trauma surgeon from the United States, Shahid Shafi, who's now the CEO of AKU, who's like, you know, you should go to Hopkins and you should go talk to people who are doing injury prevention. And it is just such an incredible thing, right, that I went back to the U.S. after having AKU credentials, which means so much, that I walk into Hopkins, I made an appointment with the person who literally created the field of injury prevention. Her name is Professor Susan Baker. And I literally walk into our office, and I meet with her, and she and another person, Ellen McKenzie, had this great project on uh, understanding the causes for deaths in the military uh, as a means to then create prevention mechanisms for that. This was not wartime deaths, this was peacetime deaths. And they literally gave me a job the same day. Like, I literally got a job that same day in research, and it was the most incredible uh, days of my life. I'll never, ever forget it. And of course, I have AKU to thank, and then I also have the warmth and openness of American academia, where if you come with good credentials and you have a good idea, people will give you a chance. And these people gave me a chance, and I am so grateful for that chance and went right, went right after it. I then also got admitted to the MPH program there. I did get a few other offers, uh, but I, since I had a job at Hopkins, I ended up staying at Hopkins. And so once you started your residency in trauma surgery, how was that experience? How was the adrenaline rush? Any amazing experiences you've had? Yeah, with all things so cool and glamorous, I got to tell you that it didn't start off that way, okay? So I was in Baltimore, and I was living with my one of my closest friends, Saad Umar, who's now a very famous public health person in his own right. Uh, we shared an apartment. Uh, we were, you know, doing degrees, a degree together, and I had the best job in the world. So they say job satisfaction is uh, like three things. You know, one, being able to do what you want to do, then two, being able to do it at the time you wanted to do it. And then three, having bosses who you really like and having a great team to work with, right? I went from that scenario to becoming a surgical intern, right? Where you certainly don't get to choose what you want to do. You certainly don't get to choose when you want to do it. And the team is whoever the team is, and you don't get to pick it. So it went from the perfect quality to the worst quality. <laughs> uh, but remember, you know, internship is all about rotation. Some rotations were fantastic. Actually, my second rotation, which was in the burn ICU, and I learned all about fluid. And remember, I love physiology, about fluid management and very complicated patients. It was just fantastic. And I really just developed this love for critical care and the ability to fix people, reconstruct people, make them better, and improve their quality of life. I mean, it was just so amazing in that second rotation. And that really kind of picked up. And uh, by the time I graduated, uh, I went, I'm very grateful, I got to go train at a county hospital, Westchester Medical Center, which was part of New York Medical College. I had this fantastic, super tough program director. I don't think he cracked a smile for five years that I was with him. And he was just so tough. Uh, and I know nowadays we don't teach medicine that way, and we don't expect faculty to be that way. But back then, this is now 20 years ago, it did. It was at least effective. Now maybe it hurt people emotionally, and maybe it, and and there are lots of things against it. So I'm not endorsing that behavior. But you know, I did work. The max I worked was 136 hours in one week. Uh, we would do power weekends when we would start Saturday morning, and you would finish Monday evening. And how we got through those things, I still can't remember. I was in my, I guess, 20s, and maybe you can function without sleep. But we did do it. I'm not, again, saying that was a good thing, but it does. I am one of the people who came out stronger for it. Not everybody probably does. 
but I'm grateful for the ability to get through that. And, you know, when I finished, on my farewell, this guy, John Savino, after five years of what nobody would say it was less than tormenting me, said the most incredible thing. He says that he tormented me because, and those are his words, because he wanted to make sure I live up to the potential of making a difference in his mind at the national level. And, and then I was leaving that county program to come back to Hopkins to do my fellowship. And of course, I had done research and I had won many awards. I'd won all these awards and he would never say good job. He was like, oh, you want another award? And he kind of moved on. Uh, so it was a very tough residency, but I'm grateful for it. I learned how to operate. I learned how to operate in what in the United States one would say austere conditions because that's how county hospitals are. And I learned how to operate with, you know, not all the things you always needed. I learned, like, if there's no, or, no person to push a bed, go push the bed yourself. I learned how to, like, bring patients to, down for x-rays. I mean, I learned all the tough things. And when I moved to Hopkins, it was like, huh? They're like all sorts of people to do all sorts of things. Where, where did all this ancillary staff come from? And then you understand the, what quality really is, right? I mean, I, that, it was number one hospital for a reason because it really was incredible in their way they were able to take care of patients and the, just the things that were there. And the people, everybody was just super smart and excellent. Everybody was excellent. And so it was almost like working at a fairy tale kind of place. We worked hard though. When I was a fellow, even then, you know, it was every third night call. I had just been married. And uh, my wife is so awesome, and I'm so grateful for having met her. I met her when I was a chief resident, and she's a pharmacist, so we both were working. She moved to Baltimore with me. We both were working really hard. So it was one of those, like, really formative times in my life where busy fellowship, every third night call, newly married, trying to, like, do fun stuff, but either she's busy or I'm busy. But we somehow got through it. It was really form great formative years. Amazing. So... Marcella, say you were also the recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. How did that transpire? So the feeling of that medal, first of all, I'm, I'm so honored and elated to be counted amongst the people who've received that medal. When you look at the kind of folks who are in there, previous presidents and so on, and even the year I got it, you know, the, there's like a class that gets it every year, so to speak, and the sort of valedictorian class was Buzz Aldrin the second guy on the moon, right? So you look at that, and then they actually, it's this incredible ceremony. And I, that year, Fareed Zakaria, the CNN commentator, also received it. And, and I was standing next to him, and they were doing, no, no, but hear this, they, they literally take you on a boat, and they do fireworks at the Statue of Liberty for you, wow. right? That's how it is. And, 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 and I remember him saying to me, he's like, Adil, I don't think you and I are ever going to get fireworks for, our, for us ever again, right? <laughs> the Statue of Liberty. And, and so there's that feeling of just incredible. But there's a much bigger thing here. Yeah. Th that's beautiful and the medal is nice and all. But really what it represents is the thing that one has to think about. What it represents is that there is a place, and it's not just in America. In fact, there are many places. And we work at Aachen, and I think Aachen also has many of those ideals. That if you work hard, and if you honestly try to make a difference, you will be rewarded. And the biggest reward is not the fireworks uh, at the Statue of Liberty. The biggest reward is when you find that it impacted someone and they would never, ever know, right? Like the, 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 the hundreds of students who've benefited from that one thing when I was a y young kid and we changed the rule, right? 
Now, there are hundreds of people who've gone through that, actually thousands who've gone through that and who have benefited to this. And, uh, you know, just the fact that sometimes people find out and they're like, oh my God, you had something to do with it. That feeling is way more than any medal that you're ever going to get. So my advice to anybody listening to this podcast is that it's super important to give, uh, give opportunity. I want to take a moment to sort of address what we're here for, right? This is a podcast for the Association of Women Surgeons. What I have noticed in my career, again, first, and maybe I have a very good vantage point because uh, please understand my, the person who trained me in critical care, Pam Lipset, my first mentor and major mentor in research, uh, Ellen McKenzie, who was my NIHK award mentor as well. Uh, she's now the dean of the School of Public Health at Hopkins. And my, the woman who gave me my first job as a surgeon, Julie Freischlag, who is now the head of Wake Forest and, of course, a member of the Board of Trustees of AKU. Maybe you have a good vantage point because I've had the w privilege to work for and learn from and be mentored by incredible women. What I've learned is, is that it is not fair playing field. And women routinely get the short end of the straw. And that there are conversations where women get pigeonholed and it's all about work-life balance and so on, which is very important. But then we don't have the conversation about how brilliant women are and how, in my opinion, when you don't give equal chance to people, you know, then we're missing like half the talent. And, and we uh, need to structurally fix those problems. I'll give you one example of what uh, we were able to achieve at Aachen in just the past three or four years. You know, in academic medical centers, promotion to senior faculty is commonly a thing where women miss out. And the theory is that actually more women graduate in medical school, from medical school than men, even when, if they enter the workforce, which, you know, in, in some countries, you know, not all women even enter the workforce, but even when they do enter the workforce, you know, for senior level promotions, for whatever reason, and there are lots of reasons we can debate, women get pushed out and the men keep going up, right? So if you look at senior promotions, women are always, number of women promoted are always less than men. The way in my mind to fix that is to create structural changes which ensure that everybody has an equal shot. Some of it has to also do with making sure that it's easy for folks to apply. A few things that we did last year, in the last few years at Aachen, was uh, revamp the Appointments and Promotion Committee, making sure it has equal representation of genders, and even making sure that the chair of the committee happens to be a woman. The office that receives the applications and runs everything, run by a woman. Those changes on their own, and, so, and then very clear structural interpretation of the guidelines. The guidelines were always there about how you get promoted but what they mean, how they're supposed to apply it, and so on. Better explanations of those. For the first time in history, there's, if you take two lines, there's always a, a line of the number of men being promoted, and that's at, think, call it like at 10. And then the number of women being promoted, call that at five, and it's a steady line going the same. In 2019, we saw a significant increase for the line amongst women, five, eight, and at 2020, the line, and it's one of the rare academic medical centers, the line actually crosses. More women promoted to senior positions, I mean professor and associate professor, than men, right? And that is possible. 
and it's possible if the right structure is created. Uh, and then the women are given the chance that they deserve. And, uh, and, and that's why I, I was thrilled to be one of your first podcast guests and uh, um, grateful that you're, you're, you're doing this. It's so thrilling to have you on faculty, Dr. Hina. I know I first were introduced to you, not by you or by one of your mentors, but by actually a patient. Uh, yeah, but this is a patient who, so now you're going to hear the story. This is a patient who had been operated on in New York and was in Pakistan and wanted to get a follow-up. And you set up the, vi the visit and you saw the patient. Faz happened to be there too, but obviously we needed somebody to see the patient and so on. And you did it. And the patient told me that that uh, cardiac surgeon, who's and she did not remember your name, but she knew you were a woman, and you know, took such great care of you. And that's just so amazing, right? That she remembers the male's name, but doesn't remember the woman's name, right? Uh, and she's a woman herself. But that was the moment I knew that I need to go find this cardiac surgeon and go say hello. So it's great to have gotten to know you. Okay, so I have two more questions for you. So you know this amazing trauma surgeon who has all these researchers, and then you decide to come to Pakistan. Why? Well, I got to say, I love what I do in Pakistan. The only regret I have is I don't get to operate enough. And I know uh, you know this from the residents, the few times I... I the few times that I do find myself in the operating room, I probably am the happiest person, right? Yes, I really did enjoy operating. And when I was in Baltimore, I probably operated the most, even more than when I was in Boston. And, uh, you know, it was a very busy time. I was a young trauma surgeon and terribly, there was so much penetrating violence, penetrating trauma and, and violence that every night we would operate on terrible things. And, you know, it was amazing to see the big outcomes, you know, gunshot to the liver with lots of bleeding and fixing those things. Uh, one of my last cases actually in Boston was a stab wound to the heart and uh, cardiac arrest, fixing the beating heart, getting the heart back restarted, fixing the beating heart. I mean, those feelings is just, it really is exhilarating. And when you see this in this last case, the woman walked out of the hospital. I still, I, I cherish that picture with her more for myself than for her. Because I, uh, I look at that picture and I think of all those tough days as an intern finally pays off because you're, you know, uh, thank God for the opportunity to, to do that. But then you realize that over the time spent overseas and by, you know, running first a smaller center at Hopkins for outcomes research and then a large center devoted to public health in Boston, which I'm so grateful to have that had a chance to have been part of. You see the impact of building programs. For example, when I was at Hopkins, we built the surgical mentoring program for public health students, and then we built a much more diverse and robust program uh, at the Brigham, at the Center for Surgery and Public Health, uh, which of course was at Harvard. That was all fantastic. And then the opportunity to come to AKU and work here is just incredible. And you've seen what we've done with the Citric Incubator. Already, you know, 140 publications by our research fellows that were hired last year. So the opportunity to build those programs was just something which is sort of, again, it's like coming back to that same dream come true. Uh, and it's almost like I could never even dream of doing this job, to be honest with you. To me, the ultimate thing was to become a trauma surgeon. And once I, I was there, once we were doing that, I was like, There's e I could do even more? And so this is like almost a bonus to be honest, to, uh, to be able to, to do this work, and I'm so grateful for it. Amazing. 
how does it feel to be the dean of the college that you're a student in? It feels unbelievable. You know, last night we did a dedication ceremony for the first dean and we named a lecture hall after him and I obviously got the chance to make remarks there and I was preparing those remarks and I look at the folks who built this institution, who, you know, put it on its trajectory to now be top 100 in the world and the best in Asia and of course the best in Pakistan. The, this place was built by fantastic people and I meet the students and I know for sure there was no way I was getting in this year, right? Because they're like, first of all, it's twice the number of students, 6,000 plus apply and we still only take 100 people. And so I'm like, hey, I'm just so lucky to have gotten in. And then I am the luckiest person in the world to have gotten this job. But I do understand that if you work hard, and if you, to be honest, play by the rules and you have a lot of luck, you can find yourself in an opportunity like this. And then if that happens to you, it's, it is your responsibility to make a difference. And that's literally what I come to work with every day. And so it's literally the best job in the world right, where you say you can make a difference every day. Any last words that you want to say to all the interns, the residents, the students out there? I know this whole podcast has been, I, I feel very energetic right now. I feel very positive right now. But I know that that's not every day. And sometimes it's tough to get, to wake yourself up and come through and slog through those days for the interns and for the residents. And I know that sometimes it's a difficult job and sometimes we lose. You work so hard on a patient and, you know, you can't make them better. And sometimes you're taking care, for example, of children, and it is the most heartbreaking thing. But it's very important that you, 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 you realize that this is what you, we signed up for. That this is, we are the people who can make a difference in those lives. And even if, the, if something bad is going on, a person's worst day is probably when you're meeting them, especially if they've come to the emergency room. They're not their usual self. They're having a worst day of their life. That nobody wants to be there. And so if you can have your best day, you can really make a big difference. And that also, if you're ever down and you're like, when will this end? The key is it will end. Like residency is a time-limited thing, right? You get through that time, even if it's tough that day, you keep moving, you keep moving, and eventually, you will get through it. Like that John Savino, I mean, he tormented me, but I love him to death now because he really, uh, you know, got us through it. And, you know, uh, when I did, just before moving to Aachen, my last visiting professorship was where I did residency. And it was just such an amazing feeling to be back there and to be amongst those patients and, and you know, talk about those experiences and meet those young faces who are going to keep baton moving and continue to make a difference. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you.